0: Hi, I'm Louisa Boa Taylor, and this is Future Food, where food trends and new technologies converge. There is a systemic change occurring in our food system. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, investors, chefs, farmers, and others defining that future.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome. I am Danielle Gould. I am the founder of Food Tech Connect and the co founder of Food Tech connect club along with Louisa um, who is the research director for AGFunder News. and both AGFunder and Food Tech Connect, we are constantly you know tracking all the top news stories to really understand how what is shaping the future of our, our food system. And we thought what if we got the leading journalists in the space together for a conversation about those top news stories so that we could have some nuanced conversations and dig a little bit deeper? And so that's where how Future Food News Review came about. We are really excited. We have an um, unbelievable group coming together today, and we're going to be talking about a wide variety of topics, including the labor movement, um, regenerative agriculture, plant-based and all proteins, major ag tech exits, and more. Um, and we're going to be joined by some incredible journalists, including Elaine Watson from Food Navigator, Joe Fassler from The Counter, Sonali Figueres from Green Queen, Errol Schweitzer from The Checkout Podcast and Forbes, Chloe Sorvino from Forbes, Bettina McElintal from Vice, welcome Bettina, and Esther Honig from The Nation. And then, oh, one more, uh, Luke Winkie from Vox. So the first story that we're going to start with is the labor movement. Um, in the U.S., so in recent weeks, fast food workers have been protesting their low wages. There are fight for fifteen strikes planned at McDonald's across the country, and there are a series of fast food restaurants that are unable to stay open because workers are walking out. You know, just last week in New York City, Chipotle, uh, New York City announced that Chipotle. Owed its its workers $150 million in back pay for labor law violations. And because of that, Chipotle announced that it would be raising wages to $15 an hour and is going to be instituting referral bonuses. You know, there's a lot of pushback in the industry right now as people are talking about that that Chipotle is a company that Whose slogan is to make food with integrity, but its business model is really about dishonesty and about not not creating food that has integrity for its workers. So I wanted to invite, I know, Errol, you write quite a bit about this. Ooh, and I just saw that Davida Davison jumped in here. So maybe we'll bring her up to the stage because she had a tweet that went viral this week talking about this labor story. But um, so Davida, I'm going to bring you up, but um, Errol, maybe you could talk a little bit about what's going on on the labor front. And I just named a couple of, of the stories around this movement, but maybe you could add
2: some more color to what's going on. Yeah. My son is uh, now fraught about eating at Chipotle, as we've talked a lot about the uh, you know how poorly they've treated their workers and you know, the wage theft and you know the lawsuits. So it's it's tough, right? You know, because what we're we're seeing across the board, I'm calling it a passive aggressive general strike where folks are saying, you know, I'm not sure if I want to risk my life for shit pay you know, poor safety conditions, you know, hard work. And, you know, I, may, maybe I'll just, you know, wait and see how, how things go, you know. And it's really being led by fast food service and delivery workers where, you know, as you mentioned, Fight for 15, you know, they're thinking of a strike uh, at McDonald's, uh, May 29th. You know, McDonald's sort of, you know, tried to throw him a bone and saying, oh, we'll, we'll raise up to 15 bucks in some of our company stores, so it's like covers like five percent of their of, of their stores. So it's it's really paltry, and then you had the uh, Los Silveristas Unidos in New York City. You know, big march recently. They've they've banded together with a really big janitorial union, local 32BJ. But they've been organizing for for close to a decade. You know, they're asking for you know living wage, health care. They want to be able to control the apps instead of the apps controlling them. It's essentially. Digital sharecropping—you know, with the the way the labor process is controlled—you know, your hours are cl- controlled, your your take-home pay—and it's really about stopping Prop 22 legislation from, from going nationally. You know, we're we're seeing this in retail a bit too, like UFCW UFC 990 in California, still pushing back against the Kroger closings. You know, they they were marching this week. And we've just seen a study come out saying that Americans are more pro-union than in decades. Like, more than 50% of Americans would join a union. Right now, only about 11% are actually covered by union contracts. And this actually is bipartisan, even even Republicans. You know, and we've documented before in the show, you know, unions, better wages, better health care, pensions. How many of us here on this show have pensions? And they set standards that help non-union workers across sectors, right? And they're especially beneficial for... You know, the service retail workforce is incredibly diverse, and, you know, women, people of color, particularly black people, really benefit, have better wages, working conditions, safety conditions under union contracts. And this speaks to the sense of urgency around the PRO Act, as well as the the real negative publicity Amazon got over the uh, really brutal crackdown of the Bessemer campaign, you know, posters in the bathroom and and, and having meetings one-on-one with employees and really making it hard to, you know, establish a union in the facility. I think it's really, it's going to blow back on them. And that's what we're seeing here. And, you know, finally, just for the audience, you know, all of us here are are, are workers too. You know, we, we have to sell our labor to survive, right? And so, you know, just keep that in mind as you're thinking and talking and writing about these issues, you know, it's, it's important to have some level of objectivity, but ultimately, though, we're subject too, and uh, we're, you know, our collective agency in helping, you know, push this, these types of issues forward is more important than uh, ever before, so um, all solidarity, folks.
1: Thanks, Errol. Yeah, I'm curious of what I, everyone else has been seeing, if anyone else has been covering this Bett,ina, I know that that Vice has been doing some great coverage of this. I don't know if you have anything to chime in with. Yeah, I mean, I think that yeah, I, th- I think that like the work that Edward and the team at Motherboard have been doing um, about labor in the fast food industry has been really important. I think that you know I think that these have been issues that service workers and fast food workers have been dealing with for so long that you know
3: I think it's really important that we're getting so much spotlight on these issues right now. Yeah, I
1: agree. Oh, Chloe, did you have something to say?
3: I'll just say too that, you know, uh, what Errol was talking about earlier with, uh, you know, and, and what you were talking about earlier with workers deciding that, you know, maybe they don't want to go back in. They, they deserve better. That's also happening with meat packing right now a lot. And production's down around 20% in a lot of plants because of this. So I, I, I'm hopeful that, you know, maybe more unionization or, you know, better contracts could come out of this too, because I think a lot of meat packers are. Starting to see that struggle really coming through at a time when there's, you know, a perfect storm of grain prices and a lot of other, you know, uh, challenges.
1: And how are you seeing in the the meatpacking industry? How are employers responding to that? How are the
3: meatpacking companies responding? They, by a long shot, I would say, they're not doing enough. And I think there's just a broad, they have not done very by their workers for a very long time, right? So I think there, this is coming to a head. And, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see in terms of where it goes in the future. But it's not being taken as seriously as I'd like to see it as of yet.
2: I could could jump in there, too. I think what's really important in meatpacking is when and if OSHA establishes an emergency temporary standard to actually create better oversight of safety conditions and labor conditions in these plants. And, you know, all the big packers, JBS, Smithfield, particularly Tyson, are, are pushing back and lobbying hard against such things. So, you know, the really pro union pro-labor, you know, department of labor, you know, Marty Walsh. He's uh, appointing uh, the head of California, OSHA. So I think there's some hope that they'll strengthen OSHA, that, you know, OSHA's been gutted, so they're going to have to add a lot to the budget, a lot to enforcement. But it's really about setting up an ETS to to protect workers. In the meantime, you know, as you're pointing out, meat plant workers are taking matters into their own hands. And, you know, I I doubt there's going to be any voluntary concessions from from these meat packers, if history tells us anything.
4: Wanted to, to add to that real quick. The I think there was the a case brought out of Iowa at the Tyson plant there where they tried to, there was a, a worker's family who was trying to sue for worker safety violations. And the plant tried to cite the I believe it was the executive order that Trump signed saying these plants should stay open. And then the federal judge in that case said that this wasn't that type of order. This wasn't brought down by the Department of Homeland Security. This isn't the official order that they would need to be able to justify having stayed open, even at the risk of their employees. And so I think that's I think that's really interesting to see this going forward, just in terms of workers' rights, sort of in the, what will hopefully be the aftermath of the pandemic. And also with all of the all of the the attention, the you know national attention that these plants have gotten here, at least in Colorado at the Greeley plant where six people died, they had said during the pandemic we're going to take all of these costs, we're going to pay for all of these costs that workers for for anyone who's being treated for COVID nineteen, we will pay for this, you know, like really trying to save face for what was happening, and then this year they raised the cost of health insurance for workers by 30%. And that actually caused 1,200 workers to withdraw from their employee benefits from their, you know, this is what their union had fought for to get these health benefits. It's just remarkable to see even after everything that's gone on, they're not, you know, in no way trying to sort of compensate or do right. (laughs) It just seems to be sort of their pattern of behavior is staying pretty consistent, but it is, it'll be interesting to see sort of how the Biden administration works with these companies as opposed to, you know, how the Trump administration did, which was very on their side, frankly.
0: Definitely. So Esther, we're going to transition to your story, which is, you know, also around, frankly, farm worker uh, work worker exploitation. You did an amazing story in The Nation uh, recently uh, around Mexican farm workers and what they're having to endure to get to U.S. lettuce fields. So, you know, tell us more.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So the interesting thing about this story is that it's been a pattern for the last 30 years or so. But of course, now during the pandemic, it has initial hazards inherent to it. So every winter agricultural season in Yuma, Arizona, the estimate is about eight to 10,000 people will come across the border from Mexico to work on those fields. So that's harvesting and planting and weeding, producing what is about 90% of the leafy winter greens that we get from or that we eat across the country, so any sort of you know salad that you're eating, kale, uh, broccoli, um, that sort of thing comes from Yuma during those winter months, and that workforce streams over the border every day. So these are folks who have um, many of them, the majority of them, have. Uh, legal permanent residents in the United States, or they're dual citizens. But most of, the, all of them who I spoke to said that they choose to live in Mexico because their wages go much further, that they can't actually afford to live off of those wages in the United States. And so um, they make this arduous commute every morning, which starts at 1 a.m. That's when they're in a line that spans several blocks in front of the court of entry and the in San Luis Rio Mexico, into the state of Sonora. So there's this massive line of people all waiting to get through the customs building. And once they get across, they wait to get picked up by buses from their employer, which is around like 5.30 a.m. And then by seven o'clock in the morning, they are out on the field working. And this line is just a chaotic hazardous mess regardless. But of course, now you have issues like social distancing and masking. There was, uh, you know, in Mexico, a very low access to COVID testing. And in Arizona, there was no effort to make any sort of to track, you know, the the rate of positivity among farm workers. Even, you know, you can imagine how difficult it is to even like even just finding the number of workers who go across the border was incredibly difficult So tracking these people to see who's positive, giving them any sort of information, reaching out to them, just incredibly difficult in general. And so this commute is on average about seven hours. And things that I documented, you know, I I was out there for a week and I would talk to workers as they waited in line. And we talked about things like a lot of people believing conspiracy theories around coronavirus not having accurate information. But then coming to believe that it was so people, you know, who didn't believe that the virus was real or that it was invented by the government, that airplanes were spraying the virus down onto them at night, Um, all of these wild conspiracy theories. um, But then ultimately believing that the virus was real because everyone I talked to knew someone who was sick, knew someone who had even died, especially among the older workers. We do have an aging farm work Farm worker population in the US. And so some of these individuals who depend on this work, who don't have any sort of or don't have enough social security to get by, are still working in the fields, even though they're in their late 60s or 70s. So they're especially high risk. I, one of the interesting things I documented in this line is that people will. Panic if they if the line is moving too slow. So depending on how many agents are staffing this port of entry, which due to COVID they've had to lessen those numbers so that they can socially distance their distance their agents. So that can mean that instead of having all six lines operating and functional in terms of like kiosks within the agency's building, there might only be three. And workers have told me there could be as few as two. And so it can get really slow. They'll start to panic. And then it causes what are called avalanches, where people towards the back in a panic to get to work because if they miss that bus, they miss a day of work and they will rush to the front of the line. So people standing in the line or towards the front of the line will just hear people start to scream avalanche. And then they know that they have to run with them or get out of the way or risk getting trampled and injured. So it's just sort of this wave of you know, hundreds of people rushing towards them. A big part of my reporting focused on the H-2A program in this area, which is interesting because the H-2A visa, which is a visa for seasonal agricultural workers who can come from many countries, but they predominantly come from Mexico to the U.S. to work in seasonal jobs in agriculture. This visa has a particular exception along the border where they, instead of entering once, And then going to their destination, which might be in Washington state or California, what have you, these individuals are allowed to cross every single day. And that's a benefit to the employer who then doesn't have to pay for worker housing, which is the most expensive component to having H-2A visa workers is having to build them housing or find them some sort of housing. And so, of course, this just exacerbates the issue, right? Because you already have this massive line and then you're going to continue to rely on foreign workforce that then comes across every single morning. So, yeah, you know, I think really looking at it, you know, it's it's certainly an issue during the pandemic, but my my hope in writing this piece was really just to highlight that this is normal. This happens every single year and now it is just particularly worse. However, we have a tendency in this country to just completely look away from how our farm workforce is treated and how the sort of measures that they have to take to get by. And so this is deemed completely acceptable and no special effort is made to get them across the border at a reasonable pace or give them some sort of privilege in this instance that would maybe allow them to, again, get across quicker or even just give them better wages that would allow them to afford to live in these, you know, small Arizona towns so that they could work in this industry because they shoulder this industry and we rely on it as consumers.
0: Absolutely. And I think your reporting is so important and more people need to read this to understand like what goes into, you know, their daily salad, you mm-hmm. know, all, all this food they're eating. You know, people don't realize the, the danger that um, the workers are in. You know, when you spoke to a lot of them, how scared are they about COVID and the potential for for outbreaks?
5: I think
4: that you really have to understand that individuals existing at this sort of level of poverty may have a different perception of risk because to them, their priority will be making rent, will be putting food on the table for tomorrow. You know, they don't maybe have any money in reserve. Their perspective, I believe, is just much more on a day-to-day, week-by-week basis and so that was everyone's main priority. Also, uh, like I mentioned, the lack of information in many cases was also very uh, widespread. And so a combination of that, I mean, people kind of scoffed at me when I, you know, aren't you, asked them, aren't you afraid of, of COVID-19? And it was like, you know, my priority is to get to work. You know, obviously it's to put food right. on the table, it's to provide for my family. And this COVID-19 thing, I mean, also understand that farm workers without any sort of paid sick leave are used to working sick. They have a flu, they'll take, you know, some over-the-counter medications and show up anyway. And that's been a huge issue in some of the studies that they've, they've found, um, is that people feel pressured by their employers, pressured financially to continue to show up to work and then they, you know, get their, their coworkers sick.
0: Right. And that's obviously not going to be great for the, you know, the farms themselves and, and the businesses down the supply chain, and ultimately right. could result in walkouts and and you know mass vacancies like we're seeing, you know, in the fast food space. Uh, well, oh, I just wanted to
4: to to say something about that, and it's that farm workers are actually excluded from the federal protections that allow them to organize, and so a huge issue with farm workers is that um, you know you have examples of union union unionization, the United Farm Workers, which was started by Cesar Chavez. Is the largest in the country, but it doesn't. They, he, you know, he actually tried to implement some of that in Arizona, and it did not succeed. And so, these individuals do not—the vast majority of them—know about their rights under labor laws, and I would say uh, are not do not feel safe. They're they're much more afraid of being fired for doing even talking to reporters. Anything can get them fired for any reason especially H-2A workers. And for them, that visa is gold because it allows them to earn wages that are unimaginable in Mexico for someone of, you know, maybe their educational background. So the hurdle for farm workers to organize and to walk off is massive.
0: I'll just say that. Right, exactly. Uh, Does anyone else have some comments or questions for Esther on this excellent reporting?
1: Awesome
2: reporting.
0: Thank you, Esther. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Esther. Um, for everyone who's just joining us, this is Future Food News Review, where we're talking to leading journalists about the top stories, and we are going to be transitioning to a to the plant based world. So there were a number of big stories that happened over the couple last couple of weeks. Epicurious stopped publishing beef recipes to encourage. Sustainable cooking, uh, in quotation marks, um, and uh, Chef Daniel Hume is uh, announced that they he would be relaunching Eleven Madison Park as an all-vegan restaurant. And there, this has been, you know, the food world has been quite a, a buzz with lots of opinions about these two announcements. So Chloe would love to hear what what you've been seeing and reporting on in this space, and welcome everyone else after um, Chloe speaks to join in and um, have a discussion about these these big moves.
3: Chloe. Yes, thank you. And I will be brief. You know, I actually didn't write about this for Forbes. I was actually out on book leave, finishing a book on the future of meat, mostly focusing on big meat when, when this all was coming out. But it was fascinating to see it all play out. And, you know, there's a lot we can talk about. You, you've it up very well. You know, the Epicurious move is quite interesting to me. It's positive in some ways. I mean, they also aren't um, publishing any of their Past beef articles, I think, a lot, in a lot of ways, it would have made a lot more sense to be clear about sourcing and and, and clear about why industrial meat was more harmful. They, they, you know, these releases are using phrases like sustainability. Generally, they're not even, you know, the Eleven Madison Park announcement didn't actually say the world word climate. I think. And so, you know, these, all these different types of different pieces of incremental news are exciting to me in some ways, but I'm a financial journalist. And I think from my main perspective, like the power dynamics of all this are super meaningful. And that's the part that I don't see really being addressed enough yet. You know, industrial meat production has to constantly be reimagined and, and re reexamined. It has to be being examined from my perspective because of that. You know, these big meat suppliers aren't going to be changing willingly, even if 11 Madison Park is going to, you know, they're doing their 300 something dollar lettuce menu the meat packers have all of this power. <laughs> they have invested in plant-based brands at the same time in lab-grown brands to save off some of this criticism and improve their own positions. It's muddled the conversation entirely. But at the end of the day, they still want those plant-based sales to be coming in addition to their meat sales. And so all this is important because again, like this culture is changing. This is, things are happening. But at the same time, we still have 38 billion dollars of subsidies going to agribusiness we still have billion dollar like billion dollars and billions of dollars going into these alternative proteins which have a lot of issues which I'm sure we'll get into more and more and there are all these billionaire investors who are really kind of controlling our our, our meat system and, and the future of our food in a lot of ways and that concerns me you know so it's, it's hard for me to think about EMP going meatless or Epicurious, you know ending beef recipes and and thinking that's so exciting when you know at the same time if the solution is just buying beans in bulk at Costco, that's a problem too, because Costco is still selling millions and millions of pounds of cheap meat alongside those beans. And the model continues to make meat packers, squeeze producers and their workers to sell huge volumes at low wholesale prices. So I'll stop there. I know there's a lot to go into and get into here. And I know we'll get into a lot more of it with all the alternative protein news that's been happening this week.
0: Yeah. Thank, thank you, Chloe. And, you know, I'm interested about like what is the actual real impact of these two moves? You know, so 11 Madison Park is obviously exclusive, expensive, as you mentioned. Epicurious is published by Condé Nast. Like how many people, what types, of what demographic of people are reading it? And And I think, you know, your point about education being key is super important. You know, it's great to make a stand and it's great to do something that, you believe in and you want to make that known, but you know what's going to be the actual real impact there? And perhaps there's other approaches that could be more impactful to teach people about where meat comes from, how it's produced, what are some other alternatives, and so on. I don't know what everyone thinks about that.
3: Yeah, I would just like to see more about actual sourcing, actual the business models and, and the types of ways consumers are actually buying the products. I think retailers in general need to be addressed a lot more in this and the types of distribution and, and everything that goes into that.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, to the discussion earlier around Chipotle and talking about food with integrity, you know, when I found it kind of striking that there's very little talk with Eleven Madison Park. You know, you're talking about we're launching this all-vegan menu in order to support d- to the climate and support our planet, and yet there was very little talk about what Eleven Madison Park was actually doing to support its staff, and how it was rethinking its business model to make it to ensure that everyone is making a living wage and having a work-life balance. And so I think that that you know when there's this going to be this growing movement around, especially post-pandemic, Black Lives Matter movement, where we have to think very holistically, right? It's not just about changing the supply chain. It's not just a, about changing the what people are eating, but it's actually about wholesale changing business models to make them more equitable for all stakeholders. I'm curious. I mean, these were such big topics. I'm sure everyone else on the stage has some thoughts. Anyone else want to jump in?
6: I'm happy Asomla. to jump in. Sure. I think Chloe makes really good points, and I love your point about The labor, but for me, a lot of what we're seeing is they're signals, right? They're they're just they're showing you they're kind of a a temperature take on what kind of these either elite restaurants or kind of middle and upper middle class media groups are are thinking about what their audiences want. So I I think that there's clearly been a shift in this plant-based movement in terms of it becoming something more desirable. For businesses to be looking at and i think you can see that with the volume of announcements launches new companies so I, I, that being said i agree that it's always siloed it's always either you're talking about alternative proteins or you're talking about the climate crisis or you're talking about regenerative agriculture or you're talking about labor rights but it, you know it's hard to get it all right and it i also feel like from the point of view of the audiences and the readers and the consumers they almost like want one issue at once that they can sort of consume, if you will. But at the same point in time, I still think overall it's moving in the right direction. Even if the, the specifics and the, the complexities are not always addressed properly, there is a lot more thought being put into what's on our plate. I'm not saying that everything, we're getting everything right. But if you compare to even, you know, five years ago or 10 years ago, I just... So many more issues are on the table now. Uh, nope, no nope, pun intended. Sorry. Good
5: one.
6: All right. Oh, Davina, yes.
5: Yeah. yeah, I wanted to follow up with that. I think that was an excellent point. And, and Chloe, I love um, your reporting and I love where your head's at. And I've got a question for you. Right now, so many of us, particularly in the restaurant world, um, we're paying attention to these, these articles written about Hume and um, EMP going vegan or looking at Epicurean, Epicurious. I'm wondering, as we are looking at, you know, fine dining or restaurants, I'm wondering if you're looking at supermarket brands. I wonder if you're looking at how this conversation around plant-based or around protein-based uh, foods, like how is that changing the supermarket shelves? I mean, supermarkets that once stocked veggie burgers are now selling a proliferation of like protein-based foods from like meat alternatives to fake chicken and fake, fake fish. Like what are the brands kind of behind those kind of brands in supermarket? And i got to ask you as a financial reporter, how's their stock doing? Like what should we be looking for in the market? Oh, Davida, thank
3: you for asking. And I will say, honestly, I know actually like Alicia Kennedy was supposed to um, be presenting that part. So I honestly really don't cover the 11 Madison Parks and their movements of the world. I really cover what's happening on shelf mostly. And, you know, there's so much we'll go into. And I think especially around um, the Upside Foods announcement, which we'll talk about in a little bit. You know, John Mackey invested in that. That's a cultivated meat, lab-grown meat company. And John Mackey was, you know, quoted as investing in it and saying that Whole Foods is wanting to get it on shelf as soon as regulations happening. So I think they're, again, pointing out this, what Sonali was saying, you know, these are very big signals happening. In terms of what's happening in the IPO market, I mean, we could have a whole clubhouse about that. And I would love to, because it's crazy. I mean, Beyond Meat, and I've written about this a little bit, Beyond Meat is one of the most highly valued foods, uh, highly valued new IPOs, right? Before... It went public in 2019. There were only five food IPOs in the previous decade entirely. Now we've already had, I believe it's almost at least, almost a dozen, Louise, I know we're talking about IPOs later, but in the past just year alone, there's been between the the SPAC market and the IPOs, there's been so many happening. So it's really paved the way in a lot of ways. But at the same time, it's a lot of, it's kind of a devil's bargain. You know, I think (laughs) I could talk a lot about, you know, if food companies should be publicly traded and I don't think they should be. And one of the reasons I think is because it's, you know, Bianca is so, it goes up and down like crazy. It, the stock is the most shorted food stock on the public markets. When I last checked, when they reported earnings last week, Uh, it was almost more than 20% of total shares were shorted, which is an insane amount. Usually for a food stock, there's like not that much up and down and it's maybe 1% of total shares, which means that there's just like a lot of people hedging on all sides of this and trying to make a buck on failure and success. And that's a huge problem when it comes to our food system. So I'll stop there. I'm going on a little rampage, but. Yeah. Thank you, Chloe.
1: Um, Yeah, I think you just brought up a a big story that we're all following, which was the news um, Upside Foods, formerly Memphis Meats, announced that Whole Foods had invested, that John Mackey had invested um, in the company, and that they are launching production to hopefully commercially launch the first um, cell-cultured chicken in the U.S. by the end of the year. So it's massive for the industry. And Sonali would love to um, have you talk to us about this story and its significance. For sure. Thanks
6: for having me. I'm super excited. So I don't know if any of you have managed to see the movie The Future by Liz Marshall, which is kind of the story of, of Uma, Valetti, and Memphis Meats. And I think Memphis Meat, now now Upside Foods, there, there's so many different things to talk about. Okay, so number one, so I'm just going to go through everything, and then I'm sure everybody has much smarter comments than me, but basically, number one, the fact that they changed their name, that's huge. If you check out their website, they've gone completely, you know, trendy and colorful and hip. From being more of a, let's say, a corporate site, it's definitely, you can start seeing the messaging that's going to come from them in terms of addressing the consumer, which of course gives the signal that, okay, they're ready to get in front of consumers and it's time to talk to consumers about cell-cultured meat. Also, obviously, that's the term they've chosen to use, cell-cultured, which is the same term that Eat Just has chosen to use because obviously terminology is a big thing in this space and, and it's interesting that both of them have chosen that. I also have to say, I think that if you have if anybody's seen the movie Meet the Future, you really got the impression from that movie that Uma was not in a rush, and now I'm getting the impression that there is much more of a rush, and I think there was no question that Eat Just uh, pushed the timeline forward for many of these companies. And you know, the fact that Singapore gave regulatory approval—I mean, I know from from back channel chat that Eat Just was really, really pushing for that, and they wanted to be the first. They wanted to have that 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 crown, and they got it. And I think that that got a lot of the other cell-based companies across the world to start accelerating. And and obviously Memphis now upside plays a huge role in the space because they were actually the first incorporated cell-based food company in the world. So I think Mosa Meat in the Med- Netherlands, the guy who created Mosa Meat is Mark Post, and he had the first hamburger in 2013 in an academic setting, but he didn't incorporate until 2015 after Memphis had already incorporated. So... I mean this is it's pretty significant if you've been following the upside story, you know that they've they they're super funded super well funded, and Uma is he's not just any founder he, he's a cardiologist, a doctor he grew, born and grew up in India. he's a very different story than a lot of the other kind of uh, cell based founders so I, I think it does lend a lot of credibility to it that he is a, a physician, his wife is a physician too not, not that I'm saying she's running the company but I do think that has something to play in the story. And they've been working on this for years now. So this is their sixth years of existence. So unlike the other companies that have come in later and just accelerated fast, you know, I think when they're the fact that they're saying they're ready to sell by the end of the year, early 2022 means that we're going to have a, a really I think they're going to be ready to scale, not just sell, because I know that they've really put in the time to work out the fundamentals rather than just. Get something to market really fast, but not have the scaling potential behind it. So, so, the, and and I think that's why John Mackey at Whole Foods is 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 behind them. And of course, that's a huge signal and, and kind of validation for the company that something like Whole Foods, obviously not the same company that it used to be now that it's owned by Amazon. But 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 still, the fact that Whole Foods, the name, the cachet that it has in the natural food world, you know, that they would be willing to put it on its shelf on their shelves, yeah. I think this this is major and this is going to accelerate the entire space times 100. Um, but it is important to couch this news in the fact that across the world we are seeing announcements from cell-based players that are really pushing ahead the timeline, uh, pushing down the price per unit. You know, I've got a, three companies recently have said to me that they, want, they will be able to get stuff on, on table, on plates by 2022, latest 2023. So, I mean, this is becoming closer and closer. I mean, there were people just you know, six months ago, mm-hmm. saying that this was five to 10 years out, and here we are. And, and yeah. I'm, just, I'm just one of those people that believe that once it's out on the shelf and it's priced uh, competitive with real meat, I think it's going to disrupt, it's going to be seriously disruptive. Whether you agree with eating cell-based meat or not, I still think it's, it's going to be big, hugely disruptive.
1: Do you have any sense from the interviews that you've done what the regulatory timeline is? I mean, can we
6: expect an approval in the U.S. this year? The U.S., I'm honestly, I don't have as many back channels on people talking in the U.S. From my understanding, and I don't know if we're, we're talking about the new Texas law that's saying that the ban on, on using the term beef for anything cell-based or plant-based. I get the impression that in, in the U.S. there's going to be a huge backlash against it. I think for me, I'm seeing Israel and China as much stronger possibilities for regulatory. And then, of course, Ira Van Elen, who's, who's William Van Elen's daughter, you know, who, of course, um, is the guy that kind of, in, kind of is the grandfather of this technology. She, she works really hard on getting the Netherlands on side, and, and, and I think there might be movement there. So I don't know. I, I, don't, I do think that there will be a fight in the U.S., and it will be a political one. But I would think everybody on this panel is much better placed than me to discuss that.
3: I'll just briefly chime in and say that Uma, the CEO from Upside, yesterday, I told him that I had heard 12 to 24 months in the US. And he kind of called me on it, but then he was like, no, I think that's kind of fair. So I don't know. I, I've heard from a few other folks, uh, including like the publicly traded, there's a publicly traded like bioreactor company now on NASDAQ for the lab grown industry they they've told me that kind of timeline too but not sure
6: for regulatory or for for commercial sale you mean you mean Um, or one in the same
3: i i I think one i think one in the same because i mean they already had the 2019 ruling and so that really started everything i mean memphis Meats upside has been they've been i think they've been they've they've done a thousand tastings already in the u.s and that's not just investors
2: hey guys just a couple quick points on the uh, Whole, whole foods piece i called a couple uh Former colleagues there. Hopefully, they're not being laid off well, in the restructuring. They're, Errol, we just give everyone contact.
1: Errol, just give everyone context that you used to work at
2: Whole Foods. Yeah, I used to be the head of grocery for Whole Foods um, for close to a decade, um, and was with the company for 14 years. So, so just a couple points of fact. My friends at Whole Foods that actually hadn't even heard about it or read the articles actually I had to send it to them. I was like, hey, <laughs> you guys bringing this in? That's cool. Anything more you want to share? And they're like, what are you talking about? But they're mostly focused on the fact on whether or not they'll keep their jobs because the a bunch of folks are getting laid off in merchandising operations. So I wish them well. The other point here is that John actually goes way back with Josh Tetrick. It was actually John's request via his relationship with Vinod Kosla that had uh, Josh Tetrick's mayonnaise, Just Mayonnaise, launch at Whole Foods. And then also one of John's co-writers on one of his cookbooks was one of the product developers early on with Memphis uh, Meat. So uh, an old friend of mine too. So th- there's a lot of these sort of personal relationships there. And then the article does say that John hopes Whole Foods is carrying it. So even though the, the private equity arm of Whole Foods where they invest in brands in the past, they've invested in Kite Hill and Beyond Meat and Epic Bar and Instacart, like there's not yet a uh, approval process with the quality standards team, meaning I'm hoping they read my article that I published in Forbes last week about risk assessment, but just a Bunch couple of good points one. in fact. Yeah. Oh, thank you. So yeah, just a couple of points about what's going on behind the scenes.
1: Errol, can you also just talk a little bit about your article that you did for Forbes around, around risk assessment? Cause I think it's really important one. Some of the questions we should be asking.
2: Yeah, and I, I didn't want to jump the stack here because I want to hear from some of the other folks, too. I did, I did publish last week, and it's really just a question of if I was a merchant again in, at, at a national retailer, what would I want to know about the product? And so it was a bit of a mishmash of consumer-facing questions, scientific and regulatory, as well as business model. So it's pretty, you know, pretty much the, the intent there. Um, some of the questions, uh, I think, have been answered by the industry But I think the public probably wants to examine those, you know, particularly around hormones and antibiotics. Others, I can't really find anything, particularly around what I call the uh, cell-based poop, you know, the waste materials, the metabolic byproducts, how much is produced. There is some interesting information about caloric and feed conversion ratios. But the main thing I'm really concerned about, just with any industry, is, is the political economy. Who owns it? Who manages the technology? What the IP is? who profits from it you know whether or not they become like other tech companies and bust unions and you know you know you know pilfer profits upward exploit their workers you know set you know standards for precarity or will this be more of a collective cooperative effort will there be worker ownership employee ownership b corps True cost accounting, externality accounting, you know, other other progressive corporate models that really don't exist much in the tech sector. I'll, I'll tell you that. I mean, I have w- worked with GoodEggs now for four years. It's one of the few companies that has a progressive model around employee ownership. And so I, I think that's the other side of it. It's like what's in it, but also who's making the decisions, who's driving it from it, who's who's profiting from it, and then whether or not, you know, to Ezra Kleins. Pretty controversial piece about public investment, and anybody who's interested in that this should read Mariana Mazzucato for that kind of context. So it's not that I'm against public investment, but once again, who profits from it, and whether it's just public investment for private gain, a la Tesla and Apple and all the technologies that we have now, or if it's public uh, public gain and it's a publicly shared, open you know, open source technology that that you know the public will have input on, hence. Uh, More about food sovereignty and right to food as opposed to another uh, tech sector angle to commodify and exploit the food sector. So, yeah, check out the piece I published in Forbes. Thanks all.
7: Great. Elaine, I saw you had a comment. Yeah, I mean, I didn't say on antibiotics because I know I I often hear people talking about antibiotics and it came up in the last um, in Cell Cultured Meat. You know, from my conversations with players in this space, they are used in laboratory settings because, you know, there's tons of researchers in there handling cells and so on. But uh, all the companies that I've spoken to predict that, you know, on a commercial scale setting that this will be possible without antibiotics. And that's really one of the major potential pluses, you know, of, of this approach to producing meat, you know, given concerns about you know the use of antibiotics in conventional meat, and, and you know the contribution to antibiotic resistance. So I mean, potentially, I think that's one of the things that's quite attractive about this. I mean, I, I feel like there's been a lot of conversations in, on LinkedIn lately about you know cell cultured meats and tech bros kind of taking over the industry and stuff. And, and it, sure, I mean, we've all read our fair share of seed funding announcements from startups promising to fix the broken food system. And you know, spoiler alert, they probably won't. And and I understand the cynicism, but you know, I think, you know, like it or not, animal products, you know, are a cornerstone of the diet in many countries and, you know, replacing them, whether it's with cell cultured or plant-based or fermentation-based alternatives, you know, seems worth exploring to me. You know, as long as Errol says we carefully scrutinise, you know, safety, sustainability, nutritional credentials and, and other things, you know, or we can just keep on slaughtering billions of animals, you know, you know, and, and it's not an either-or to me, I think, you know, we can I also agree with those, obviously, who say trying to improve conditions for animals and people working in the conventional meat industry, you know, which for the near term is going to continue to grow, should be our priority, you know, along with addressing food policy. But, you know, some of these alternative approaches, you know, to me, are certainly worth um, exploring. But I, I do think uh, on Sunley's point about, you know, this kind of taking off, I mean, I spoke to Memphis Meats, sorry, Upside <laughs> Foods, you know, th- this week as well. And 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 they're still kind of saying that even with this announcement, they'd be talking literally about a handful of restaurants. So this isn't, you know, a significant scale, really. And they also haven't confirmed whether it's going to be hybrid products they're releasing, you know, combining cell-cultured meat and, say, plant-based, or if it's going to be 100% cell-cultured, which kind of interested me. Because, again, it suggests it's pretty small scale and at quite a premium. So, Again, it feels like – I still think that, you know, while there's going to be a bunch of people releasing products on a small scale in the next, you know, couple of years, depending on regulatory approvals, it is going to be a while until this stuff is actually remotely capable of competing with conventional meat. Yeah, that's
0: that's really interesting. And I I find it interesting that chicken was the the first product too. and The easiest one to do. Yeah, is it the easiest one? And
6: also – just on Elaine's point, I don't know if everyone knows that just one is not 100% yeah.
0: plant-based. Well, that's yeah. what I was going to say. Yeah, it's it's partly plant-based, right? Yes. Yeah, so that's interesting that how they'll come out and, and, but, you know, I everyone thought that was the first cultivated chicken. I guess it is, but it's not 100%, so... Um, that's interesting, but Elaine, just going to um, some reporting you did this week, or was it last week? A really great article called "Brave New Animal Free World." When animal products are no longer made from animals, what do we call them? You know, are they <laughs> vegan? <laughs> and you know, I love it. And it, but you know, it also does kind of come back to some of Errol's questioning around like labeling, like where do these these products kind of sit? So, yeah, just tell us a little bit more about your reporting there.
7: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this kind of was actually prompted by a very unpleasant um, email I got from somebody accusing me of shoddy journalism, which is, you know, always what you want to see in your inbox um, on a Friday afternoon and, you know, helpfully copied in my boss and the HR department of my company. Wonderful. But um, this is about, um, you know, the definitions of vegan. And it is actually much more complicated than I think the, uh, the, the writer suggested. But... I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and I know Sonali has written about this too, is, you know, when animal products become decoupled from animals, what do we call them and, and are they vegan? You know, is vegan dairy a contradiction in terms? Can you have animal-free animal proteins? And I, mean, I think, you know, terms like almond milk are already somewhat controversial, you know, at least if you're a dairy farmer, but at least, you know, you say that those terms are qualified with phrases such as plant-based or dairy-free. But, you know, what about milk made in a bioreactor from actual bovine mammary gland cells without cows or milk made with all the key components of cow's milk, but they're just made by microbes instead of cows? I mean, you've got a fairly good argument there for saying, well, you know, if it looks like a duck, it quacks like a duck and it walks like a duck, you know, maybe it is a duck. And, you know, what is milk um, you know, anyway? And I think, you know, for vegan labelling I think with cell cultured meat, a lot of people would say, well, you know, obviously it's not vegan. It's made with real animal cells, even if no animals were slaughtered to make it. But when it comes to something like milk proteins made via precision fermentation, when you're using like an engineered microbe, it's much more complex. You know, first, the term vegan isn't actually legally defined in the US. And second, not all vegans feel the same way about it. I mean, Perfect Days founders, who I believe are both vegan would argue that their animal-free whey protein is vegan because it's literally made without the use of animals. So, you know, the initial kind of bovine DNA sequence that I think was extracted, you know, harmlessly from a, a hare or something like that, well, that initial DNA sequence that they used to program the microbes to produce the whey protein, you know, that just came from a free scientific database, was used to create entirely animal-free DNA molecules, and the host organism is a strain of... Um, fungi and so you know you could say that's a fairly compelling argument that it's vegan it's made without animals but others would say well it's it is literally a dairy protein and how can you call it animal free and how can you call it vegan I mean they've had some pushback um, at Perfect Day and from some of the companies using its ingredients from more militant vegans Uh, and then there are also kind of people with dairy allergies that have become kind of used to looking for products that say vegan because it's a kind of proxy for it's safe for them to eat and so, you know, even, so, even though some of these companies using these milk proteins, you know, feature an, an allergen warning on the front of pack, you know, potentially some consumers could be confused. But, you know, I think this is only going to become much more of an important question as more and more products are produced that, you know, are literally identical to animal proteins or, or other animal products, but they're produced without animals. I mean, is it, you know, ca- can you have a, a sort of an animal-free animal product? Um. You know, who defines dairy? I mean, in the future, I mean, in in 50 years time, we could even argue that maybe cell cultured meat might be considered vegan because, you know, if you've got these kind of cells that can produce, you know, ad infinitum that have been, you know, long decoupled from the animal they came from, maybe vegans would feel quite, you know, ethical vegans, if you like, might feel quite comfortable even eating that. So. I think it's going to become an interesting question in the coming years. Can I just add a couple things, Elaine? Um, because sure. we also
6: covered a similar story. We did an interview yes, with yes. Irina. I think you also had in your awesome article about about terminology and a couple of things. She just to add to obviously a very very complicated discussion. One that will really really be different territory to territory in the U.S. Probably state to state. You know, it's just going to be so complicated. But even vegan certifications of which there are actually more, many more than one might think, but the two most famous are the certified vegan, which is very common in the United States, and the vegan society one, which is common in the UK. There's also a big Australian one. They all have different definitions of vegan. Some of them do actually take into account the, the DNA part. And, and so basically, if it has this animal DNA grandfathered in, then it's a no. But I also think that it, from a Basically, there was a huge, huge debate that erupted in the Hong Kong vegan group over the ice cream Ice Age, which is a locally made ice cream that is using Perfect Day's technology. And the reason that is is because Perfect Day was invested in by Horizon Ventures early on, which is a which is Lee Ka Shing, one of Asia's richest men, who's Hong Kong based. It was his VC firm, so they work closely with Perfect Day, and so they their idea is to empower local entrepreneurs to make food locally using technology they've invested in. So this ice cream company made this ice cream and they put vegan on the pot. And someone bought it and got, got sick because they were allergic to whey protein. And they thought that vegan meant, you know, no whey. And so this created a huge debate. And of course, you know, the ethical vegan said, it's fine for me, because as Elaine said, well, there's no animal slaughter involved so i'm saving animal lives so go team but of course the 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 crux of the of the the pushback was that for health reasons you can't use the word vegan if it has whey which of course is a, is a debate that we can have but i think from a from a lawsuit point of view i i became quite convinced that i don't know if you can use the word vegan without qualifying
7: it because yeah of- i mean uh- I would totally agree. I think that um, I know from conversations with Perfect Day that they've been kind of thinking about this a lot. And it's the kind of thing where, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not their decision what their customers obviously put on their, as you say, from a litigation perspective to start kind of featuring the word prominently, you know, vegan on the front of pack. Whereas, you know, on your website, for example, in the frequently asked questions, you know, people are obviously going to ask, well, is it vegan? And then you can have a more nuanced discussion, you know, talking about regulatory definitions and, you know, and and people's kind of uh, personal views and obviously just being very transparent about what it is and the fact that it's a dairy allergen. But I think you're right, you know, from if I was a a food marketer and, you know, making an ice cream featuring this stuff, I probably wouldn't put vegan on the front of pack or, or anywhere on pack perhaps. But, you know, encourage people to go to the website and, and learn more. If, if we have time, I
8: actually have a quick question about this for folks I'd love to hear. Do it. Or, or, yeah. You know, obviously, as, as you've all been saying, this is Joe, which I know you can see from my avatar, there is this kind of shift towards, you know, instead of focusing on courting VCs, like focusing on pitching the public on these products that that the upside rebrand really sort of demonstrates. But, you know, given all the nuances and regulatory complications that that we're talking about, um, from what I understand, there's this kind of memorandum of understanding uh, between USDA and FDA about how these products are going to be kind of regulated and, and labeled, but the finer points are really not there. It's kind of about delegation of responsibilities. So, as the sort of you know, we know about Singapore, like we know the technology is getting more and more ready for prime time, but the, you know, the, the federal government's kind of like lawmaking apparatus is not necessarily quick moving. So what do you all think is going to happen in terms of the timeline there as this sort of very eager, you know, to recoup investment, you know, industry hits up against the government kind of very slow and methodical, regulatory system, and what does that mean in terms of when when some of these questions might actually be worked out and you might actually, you know, be having cell-cultured meat in Whole Foods or whatever it might be?
7: Yeah, I was kind of confused a bit by, by Foods' announcement saying at the end of the year because I thought, know, you know, do they have some kind of particular, you know, they've been working with um, the FDA and, and ASDA for, you know, from the very beginning, so... I'm thinking, do they know something we don't? I mean, they say that there's not any particular announcement. I mean, it's my understanding that there's like, after this March 2019 joint regulatory framework was announced with both agencies, they set up these three working groups. There's the pre-market assessment one, which is more kind of FDA, looking at the cell lines and so on. There's labelling and claims, which is kind of both of them, I think. And then the transfer of inspection authority, and I don't know what progress has been made on any of those. I mean, if you if I kind of, you know, to email the people in the press office, they're just saying, you know, we're making progress, but they won't provide any dates. But I I did wonder, you know, why, you know, what, what was the thinking behind Upside Foods kind of signalling that they were hoping to get something on the market by the end of the year? I mean, even just on the labelling front, if there's going to be public comment on proposed wording, you know, that's gonna take ages. So yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's it kind of interested me that they just chose to, you know, make the announcement this um, week about priming.
6: I pushed back on the date, and they made me. They were like, "No, no, twenty twenty two is wrong. Like, you need it's twenty twenty one. Like, we're we're confident." But I couldn't yeah. get more than that, so I, I I don't know. But Joe, just to just to go down, just go back to your point. I thought that was a really good question. I mean, I think it goes back to Errol's piece in Forbes on kind of all the questions around cell based meat, and even. This group right now, I mean, we spend a, a pretty big chunk of our time covering this space. And we have still got so many questions. So I think, yeah. you know, politicians are, are way behind on this. I, I, I mean, do we even have that many politicians that can adequately speak to the alternative protein space with, with depth of knowledge? I mean, I mean, maybe we do, but, but you know, certainly not, not a huge amount anywhere in the world. I mean, even in Singapore, it's just a couple of people that are expert in, in this space. I mean, GFI supports a lot of a lot of these discussions, but we're just, I just it just feels so far. And I think Elaine is right that most of it will come out in high end restaurants and small bits. I guess for me, I just think things are accelerating. But the regulation, I don't know, the regulation is, is going to be a huge, a, a huge kind of, you know, like obstacle. Although I do think, for example, in China, you could see that go from one day to the next, like we're going to allow it. And I don't know if anyone saw that China's already just put out a voluntary uh, plant-based meat standard, their first ever. It's going to go into effect in June. They they pushed it out in December. So I don't know. I just I see signals happening in terms of that, but in 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 like in, in more kind of complex democracy type situations where you need you know you need kind of engagement with your communities and your voters. I don't know how quickly this can happen because I don't know how much the knowledge is there to have the right conversations at this stage.
5: Right, right. That's it. I was going to say that I think that that was an, an, an excellent point brought up. Joe, thank you so much for lifting that up regarding regulation. And my concern is just that as well. And you know, when you have a a company uh, previously, which was Memphis Meat, and I think, I, I wanna say Chloe wrote a story about this years ago when it was, when the I name did. was Memphis Meat before it rebranded. That- can say that, to Damita, thank you. I, yeah, I think Chloe wrote a story about this years ago when, um, before M- Memphis Meat um, uh, rebranded, but in, in someone asked the question, why chicken? And, and, I, and I'm wondering if the question to why chicken first had anything to do with the fact that Memphis Meat got a huge amount of investment from Tyson. Uh, and, and then, of course, you know, we're talking about Mackey. But what about the investment that Bill Gates and, and Richard Branson has has invested in Memphis Meat? So my question are, is, are billionaires and corporations going to write the legislation if our if our congressmen and women aren't as knowledgeable about this category, are, are, are we going to have legislation be written by, you know, corporations and by the one percenters? So I'm, I'm watching this closely as well. Yeah. As Rachel
1: Maddow says, watch this space. And I know, I mean, we always have the most spirited conversations about this because it's just such there. It's, it's evolving so rapidly. There's so much money. There's so much behind the space. There's, you know, th- there's this, fear that we're gonna replicate the existing system. And I think that we have to be very critical and look at this space with a very critical eye to ensure that we're not replicating, you know, the, the issues of the um, green revolution. And I know we have to move on, unfortunately, but we're gonna have many more conversations and Davida, to your point, I know this is something that Errol brings up quite a bit. So would love to involve you with future conversations about this moving right along so we had a great piece from joe in the the counter about the reckoning that regenerative agriculture needs talking about how we've been avoiding these uncomfortable conversations around equity race and access and how that is threatening to spoil the the movement's environmental pro, uh, promise so joe tell us a little bit about your story
8: yeah and I think it's a natural transition actually to some of the question from some of the questions David was just raising in terms of Simply, you know, when we talk about regenerative agriculture, who benefits, right? And who's, who, what voices are being heard and listened to as we're crafting the policy around this, specifically when it comes to the question, which is being, you know, debated, I think, quite hotly within the Biden administration of of paying farmers for regenerative practices or for carbon sequestration. So um, this story kind of came about through uh, a study uh, came out uh, from CU Boulder, where the the scholars on the, on, the, on the paper basically asked the question of, of what actually is regenerative agriculture? You know, literally, how is it defined? And they went to all these academic journals and looked at practitioner websites and found that there was actually very little consensus in terms of what the term actually means. And so that was kind of my starting place, was in this sort of more semantic um, realm. I started just, I thought it was, good. <laughs> the story ended up being 13,000 words, but I started by just, you know, I want to do a little piece on the study and just started going around to different folks in the food and ag space asking a simple question, which is, what is regenerative agriculture? And it clearly became, it very quickly became clear that there's very little consensus on that topic. And when it comes to the thing that a lot of people are especially excited about, which is, you know, paying farmers for generating carbon credits, um, there's really, really not much... Consensus. So the the kind of like big debate that's that's happening right now, which this is this language comes from the study. It's not really so much being used in industry, but I do think it does accurately describe the debate. Um, is processes versus outcomes? So if we're saying uh, farmland, you know, a piece of farmland is regenerative, or if we are uh, going to, you know, compensate a farmer for. You know, sequestering carbon. Are we doing that by kind of looking at the processes they're using? In other words, how they farm, and then kind of paying them per acre of of practices used? You know, uh, assuming that that will have a given environmental impact, or are we actually trying to measure, uh, not model? the amount of, say, carbon that is in their soils, which is very tricky. You know, it, it, it can be done, but there's a lot of, I won't go into the, all the science um, in that, but it's, it's something we can't really quite do without a kind of uncomfortable margin of error. So even why, it's, it actually kind of reminds me of the cell cultured meat. You know, it's like we're barreling towards this potential... Quote unquote, solution, uh, but the basic fundamentals of it have not yet been worked out. So as I continued that uh, kind of line of questioning, I, I, you know, as I talked to more and more people, it also became very clear that a lot of the conversation around regenerative agriculture and around these credits has been incredibly exclusionary. It's often the same largely white faces, you know, leading the discussions. Uh, You know, one of my sources um, drew a distinct parallel between regenerative ag and agroecology, which is a term that has been, you know, kind of defined through a very consultative movement process where it's not just top-down. Regenerative agriculture has been very top-down. Like, that term and the thinking behind it has been led largely by corporations and think tanks and foundations and has really sidestepped a lot of very important conversations that are going on, not only about equity and access, but also about techniques and processes and indigenous knowledge and, and, and all kinds of things. So that started to become a big focus of, of the piece. It's, 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 this is another place where it's not being fully thought through. And, and the re- part of the reason that's so important is that if you look at American farmland, it is 97% owned by white people. So if we're talking about carbon credits, that is a benefit, a financial benefit that is only available to this subset of the population. And so it seems very strange right to be talking about farming that makes the whole world better and and is you know is about improving things when it's really actually sort of a land wealth preservation strategy um, as, as one of the sources in this in this study um, in in my piece said, and certain people are kind of locked out from that. But it even goes beyond that. Um, As I talked more and more with folks, academics, agroecologists, native farmers, farmers of color, you know, some of these ideas came to the fore that, in fact, regenerative agriculture and its environmental goals are inextricable from the conversation around equity. And that's for a lot of reasons that are in the story. Part of it has to do with crop subsidies and the way that they they work now, you know, it's very mechanized. It's a lot about like just adding, cro- you know, cover crops to your basic cornfield or whatever. The entire history of sort of mechanized, you know, row crop farming is very very inextricably linked with the history of pushing people of color off the land, with the history of, you know, the homogenization of ownership of American land. But not only that, for really important reasons. And Sylvia Secchi, who some of you might follow on Twitter, she's this great economist at the University of Iowa. She says that um, the environmental goals of regenerative agriculture are literally incompatible with the existing crop subsidy program. And so we have to be able to make these bold reforms. The other is around land access. And this is the other reason why the environmental conversation and the equity conversation have to be the same conversation, which they really aren't right now in in many circles. In order to actually, you know, run a farm like an ecosystem, you can't just do it with one guy on a tractor and 400 acres. I think in Iowa, the average farm is is 1.2 farmers and 330 acres. You cannot run a sort of rich ecological system with that kind of people. You need more people on the land. And so there's, there's the other part of the story is there's this um, access crisis. I talked to Taz Walker of Rafi, who talked all about how hard it is for the, the folks in the Farmers of Color Network that he works with to even buy small plots of land. I mean, you can't get in. It's so expensive. And of course, carbon credits are only going to exacerbate that problem. But if we really want to have a regenerative agriculture we need to solve the kind of human capital crisis. Liz Carlyle, who's a great academic who writes a lot on these topics, said that you know there's a lack of human care, and that human care is absolutely necessary to even just get the basics of, of the kind of environmental goals that, that regenerative agriculture might have. So it's about how can we change policy so that, it's, so that agriculture is not so exclusionary? How can we get the many people who often who are um, you know, farmers of color and aspiring farmers of color who want to work the land, who want to live you know joyful, remunerative sustainable life on the land access so that they can adopt some of these principles or bring in, you know, knowledge that they may have that's already being excluded from the kind of conversation around big agribusiness. So it's a long story. There's a lot going on. But the basic thesis is, okay, right now we're talking on the one hand about, you know, there's like the Justice for Black Farmers Act, there's land access. This is one conversation. And then on the other hand, there's carbon credits and all this stuff. And the reason why the story is 13,000 words is it's really saying, no, we've got to smash those together. They're deeply intertwined. They're deeply interlinked. And to talk only about sustainability is it's not only like internally incoherent, but it actually won't work. Like regenerative agriculture can never be successful unless you fold in the equity piece.
1: So thank you for your amazing reporting. And Errol, it looked like you had a question.
2: I was just going to say it's, it's so crucial. It's one of the most brilliant pieces of journalism to come out about organic and regenerative ag. And I just want to appreciate Thanks, Joe Frasler and the counter. It's amazing. And it's so right on. Everybody needs to listen to it, study it and and implement changes based on those learnings. So thank you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. My colleague, Manuel, is just messaging me and saying how important what you're talking about is, Joe. And I think, you know, with you know, thinking about on the on the tech side with what's being developed around carbon markets. You know, there's so much that's unproven there, there's so much that's unknown, but you've got these companies raising huge amounts of money. Think about indigo agriculture as one example, but there's several others that are in it, at Farmers Business Network, that are doing things around carbon markets and measuring soil. There's still so much that's unproven around the science there, yet they're going kind of hell for leather. They're selling carbon credits. And it's, it's kind of quite scary, really. like which direction it's gonna go in and what are gonna be some of the unintended consequences here, so I'm super glad that you're, you're tracking that. Uh, the carbon thing is something Danielle and I are hoping to uh, dig in more to, so always uh, you know, keen to hear from those of you that are, have been um, covering that as well.
8: Yeah, keep me posted on that. that work for sure.
0: Yeah, we're gonna be doing, we're hoping to do a deep dive into
1: planet-positive food. And that includes the equity piece and the people piece, you know, I think that, you know, to my comment earlier, where oftentimes we, you know, there's this, you know, a little bit of techno optimism and techno saviorism, right? That we have all this innovation that's coming to save agriculture and we're not actually, we're thinking very much on the the supply chain, right? On the agriculture itself and, and not... Thinking holistically about the equity piece, about how are we restructuring, how are we building regenerative companies, right? Not just regenerative agriculture, yeah. and that's something that we're going to be we're going to be um, digging in deeper. How do you share, distribute value and wealth across all stakeholders so that people are actually stakeholders, right?
0: Yeah, and I, yeah, I think.
1: No, and your reporting is foundational for making that case. It's critical, so thank you.
8: Yeah, I mean, I think that just has to be a baseline, right? If we're talking about something being regenerative, and this was one of the questions of the, of the piece is, well, what do you think is broken, right? And if you don't think that, you know, our, our society is broken in terms of inequality, then you're missing, you're missing a big part of the point. But I also just want to underscore how literal some of this stuff is. One of my sources of Fatima... Ahmad, who's the executive director of Frontline Farming in Denver, Denver, which is a really great organization if you don't know it, she said, you know, <laughs> if you look at a lot of these farms, you know, the people doing the work are, you know, so-called farm workers are often... You know, depending on the part of the country, and are often farmers of color. Are also are often people who you know are incredibly skilled agronomists. Um, they may have knowledge of indigenous practices. They're the ones going. They're they're the ones that know what's actually going on. And the people who own the farms, again, 97% white people. There's no line of communication between them. So actually, there's so much knowledge, and she called it an epistemological issue. In other words, it has to do with with what is known. Uh, the the people crafting these policies on a very literal level do not understand what 's happening on their own land because they 've delegated it and because they don't value the knowledge of expertise of the people that they employ and so you know just I, I just think that 's a great example of how it, it 's not just about values so of course, the ethics of it is key, and these are human lives that we 're talking about but but it's like literally the environmental assumptions we make cannot be borne out in, in all of these. The goals cannot be accomplished without addressing equity. I mean, it's, it just really struck me how profoundly yeah. that is true.
1: Yeah, well, thank you so much. And we have one last story that we want to cover. We're excited to have uh, Luke Winky here with us. And he wrote a really interesting piece. So I think a lot of people have been following the meat culture wars, but there are also coffee (laughs) culture wars. So we have right wing coffee companies that want to make coffee great again. That's the article that Luke wrote for Vox last week. And Luke would love to hear what you're reporting on, what you're seeing.
9: Yeah, yeah, a a bit of a tonal departure uh, for the last 30 minutes, because in a lot of ways, I think the story is really funny. Yeah, so about like a year ago, I started to notice uh, like a handful of these coffee startups kind of popping up that had this really kind of aggressive right wing or like, like MAGA overtone to them. The most famous ones this one called Black Rifle Coffee Company, which I guess to their credit has been around before the Trump administration. But yeah, I kind of wanted to just do a story about sort of the motivation for, you know, kind of turning coffee into this super partisan issue or really kind of going going after the throat of the uh, liberal coffee shop hegemony, I guess. So yeah, the, luckily a couple of them picked up the phone. The primary subject in the story is uh, a coffee shop called Conservative Grounds that opened in the Tampa area right before the pandemic, like early 2020. And run by this guy, uh, Cliff, I think is his name. And uh, it is a coffee shop in the sense you can go in there and get a cup of coffee. But inside, they also have a full recreation of the Oval Office, uh, complete with standees of Donald Trump and Melania Trump that you can take photos with. It's called, um, the slogan is The Right Coffee for America. I think they also say that they they sell, you know, we got fresh roasts and fresh patriotism, something like that. And they also sell a ton of kind of Trump Pence gear inside, so you can kind of go in and, you know, get your uh, get your hot mug and also, you know, get get your latest culture war T-shirt or whatever. Uh, and, and Cliff, uh, I actually think is quite salient. He he referred to so the thing with Cliff is he runs this place. He doesn't actually drink coffee. One of the first things he said to me. He opened this coffee. That's amazing. Shop. Yeah, he opened this MAGA coffee shop despite the fact that he is not a coffee drinker he also is like a minor like facebook celebrity guy that you know kind of like does like that dashboard rants like that kind of guy uh the thing is so yeah he opens this coffee shop he doesn't drink coffee and of course all the roasts have different sort of like conservative overtones to them i this isn't that conservative grounds another place we talked to sells a roast called the number 47 roast. Like the first roast was the number 45 roast, but then their other one is the number 47 roast to say, you know, that in 2024, uh, Trump will be back, whatever. I was talking, I, I didn't see my this myself, but someone told me one of them is selling one called the, their decaf is called Sleepy Joe, which I have to admit is like a pretty good joke. The point is Cliff referred to very specifically, said, this is a camaraderie shop. It's not a coffee shop. It's not really about the coffee that's one thing that was kind of echoed across uh, everyone i spoke to the idea that you know that your average coffee shop you know skews liberal which i guess is like probably true but you but not like definitely not <laughs> definitely not as politically charged as, as these places and uh you know that, that that this is a space for people that you know just can't bear uh being in that kind of liberal space but you know they, they also do like uh handgun training. There's a lot of weird stuff going on there. Uh it's all it's all kind of comes back to this Starbucks thing. This feeling that Starbucks represents this really kind of progressive anti-conservative institution in America. Everyone if you go to any of these websites, talk to any of these guys, they'll start talking about Starbucks. Kind of rooted um late in twenty sixteen, remember they did those Christmas cups that weren't like Christian enough or whatever, Christmassy enough. Yeah. That caused a thing. And then kind of shortly after the Trump administration got started and during the Muslim ban, I think Starbucks came out and said they were going to hire 10,000 immigrants or 10,000 refugees, I think I should say. And Black Rifle, one of the kind of the main player here, counter by saying that they were going to hire 10,000 veterans. And so it's kind of been like a culture war sort of centered around Starbucks ever since, which is weird because, again, you know, Starbucks has never like they've definitely taken some aggressive stances in the past, but they're certainly not. You know, I, I don't think anyone would consider them the most sort of politically active, you know, major food company in the world or even major company in the world. But that is definitely a perception um, in these spaces. So that's, that's become the target. And it also makes sense because you think, you know, coffee doesn't really expire the way that other foods do. Pretty popular. You know, a lot of people drink coffee relatively easy to source. You know, if you are going to. This is a, this is a point that an advertising, uh, expert, uh, that I quoted the story made that if you're going to slap some sort of political affiliation onto a food product, coffee actually kind of makes a lot of sense considering the sort of boxes of checks. You know, it's pretty easy to market and sell. So yeah, the, uh, the culture war continues. The, uh, we, we, we are living in a time where it feels like every company, um, now the, the inertness of, uh, of the Obama years or before that, when when companies kind of preached neutrality or or, or apoliticalness, I, I think that really is starting to to go. We saw that a lot last year during the George Floyd protests. You think of how many companies um, put out you know BLM solidarity statements. You know, to relative levels of just, you know severity, some of them definitely kind of like tried to toe the line. But I I, I do think that we uh, we are entering a world, or we're we continue to live in a world where if you are a company that is marketing anything. There is an expectation for you to be at least sort of aware of what's being talking about, talked about politically just because of how active politically so many fairly ordinary people that didn't really care that much about politics became over the last four years. I mean, that's my armchair take, but that's, that's what I think is the, at, the, at the source of all this. And uh, so, yeah, that, that, that's where the culture war is headed. It's in our, it's in our morning broods.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, this story is interesting on so many levels and I'm curious where you think this is heading. I mean, what does it mean to be a brand, you know, in this world and where, you know, over the next five years, where are we going?
9: Yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. Right. Like, I I think um, I think a lot of brands would are are hoping that uh, eventually things will kind of simmer down a little bit and, you know, that that that. We will not live in quite as much in the middle of just a constant zeitgeist. But uh, I think that is sort of wishful thinking. I I don't know. I I do feel that we we will continue to kind of exist in pretty hyper-polarized society for the foreseeable future. And I think the Trump administration is just going to sort of hang over so many things in our culture, especially, you know, including, you know, the choices we make as a consumer. And that is just how it's going to be for a while. Maybe there's like a historical precedent for that. I don't know. But I think that the, the idea that, you know, kind of like companies or merchants or anything can kind of return to that sort of comfortable inertness that they once had, especially considering that several fairly successful coffee companies can, you know, create a startup based around not being inert at all and being pretty reactionary. I think that kind of is instructive of what we could expect in the future.
1: Do you think that it's going to be impossible for brands to become apolitical in the future, or do you think that everyone's going to have to pick a side to survive
9: yeah i don't I don't know i uh, I think it, it was really interesting to me last year during the the George Floyd protests about how all of a sudden, every single company. You know, it felt like, you know, you remember that time in kind of like, uh, late May, early June, you go to, you go to any Twitter account of any company and they had put out some sort of message of, of solidarity or at least acknowledgments uh, of the protest. And, you know, a lot of them were kind of mealy mouthed and not really like, you know, fairly corporate, but I, I do, but that was still, I think kind of a paradigm shift. And as long as we remain sort of hyper polarized, I do think that will be an expectation of a lot of consumers i know it's something that you know like that, that 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 at least me as a consumer like you know like i i it's something i keep in mind here and uh, I, I did that before obviously. But it's something i still keep in mind um i do think that a, in a lot of boardrooms right now there is an understanding that, that is like become an expectation but again i'm i'm just kind of spitballing there i don't know exactly what their mindset is so or if they have hard numbers on that, but just uh, anecdotally and just sort of just existing in the culture, that that does seem to feel like that that where we're going to be for a while.
6: Um, Danielle, is it okay if I jump in because this is a very do U.S. It. this is a very U.S. based conversation and it's super interesting and I, I think Luke is right, but mm-hmm. let's talk for a second about China. Sure. I think it's going to be the opposite. If you want to do business in China, and this is already happening in the in the fashion world but it's going to happen with the food world too. You're going to have to be as apolitical as possible, or you're yeah. going to have to be on their side. But, I mean, H&M is facing this right now. Nike is facing this. Fashion brands are going to have to take a stand. A lot of the luxury European brands are choosing to not be political so that they can continue with you know growing their market share in you know, what is now officially in the fashion world the biggest consumer market in the world. And food brands are going to have to be careful, too, because as China's middle class grows, they want more foreign brands. They want more import. Um, you can't be human rights like food justice brand in the U.S. and then like b- go to China and do really well. So, I, I mean, I think it's more that it's going to be I think there will be a political brands in food as mm. well, um, obviously less than in fashion, because it's easier, I think, to be less non-political in fashion than it is in food, because food is so primal and so linked to identity and politics in a way that I think fashion just isn't to the same extent. But we have to think about the global kind of market here. And in a lot of Asian countries, there isn't an appetite for political brands. It's not what people want to see.
9: I mean, can you play both sides with that if you're a brand, though? Are you able to kind of like Okay, we're gonna we're gonna silo our apoliticalness for you know these eastern markets that that were that we're uh, obviously engaging, and then in the West we can kind of uh, to play that audience too. Or do you think that's sort of just universal? If, if, that because like you know a market like China has grown so big that you kind of have to keep that in mind in every decision you make, no matter where you are in the world.
6: I think you're absolutely right that pr- some bl- brands are already trying to play both, but. Yeah. I, From what I can see, and again, this is mostly happening in fashion right now, it's backfiring. Like, for example, um, Zara took off their human rights policy from their website um, in order mm. not to upset China. And customers started getting upset on social media. So, so far, it's yet to be seen if there is an impact to their bottom line. But there is going to be a reckoning of in fashion of, are you are you with China or not, and that's going to affect your business elsewhere. So I think it's just going to have to come down to the math. I mean, I would love to believe that it comes down to the what's right, but it, it's probably going to come down to the you know the the P and L. Yeah. And if China represents too big of a share, and and the Chinese netizens are extremely kind of comfortable making their nationalism and identity and their requirements known. So one, this is going to start happening with food. Like for example, um, baby infant milk brands, which are huge in China, you have to be really careful. So I, I don't. I think brands would like to have it both ways to answer your question, but I'm right. not sure it's going to be possible.
9: Yeah. So well, sorry, So you do you think? But do you uh, do you also think that American consumers have grown more politically conscious in the way they shop, and that there's like a? Because you just mentioned that that the Asian market maybe just doesn't consider that as much. Do, do you see those two sides sort of drifting further apart from each other? Or, or do you think that, I, do, do, do you, do, you you mentioned the Zara thing that, you know, that kind of caused a backlash, which is kind of interesting because, you know, that is sort of another emblemization of people being more politically minded in the way they shop in the West.
6: I think for sure, from what I can see, I mean, I haven't been back to the U.S. for two years, but mm-hmm. from what I can see, and obviously everything that happened with Me Too and Black Lives Matter and everything. I mean, just sure. looking on Instagram and, and, and getting the press releases I get, it seems like every brand in the U.S. is making a stand about diversity, about inclusion, about yeah. about race, about you know just all of these topics that were not in the releases before, that were not in their messaging before. But when I say that there's less of an appetite in Asia for for those things, and it's only certain things in Asia, like in India, for example which is just going through hell right now but but just before this this horrible wave Indian like the Indian landscape is different right they also have their own nationalism and it's much more geared against China for example but right. in in terms of certain Asian countries like in Singapore and in in Hong Kong to some extent now that we've been really quieted down by the national security law and obviously in China it's not I'm not saying that there aren't consumers that want to have more political stances but I'm saying that it's not really, you're not really allowed to lead with politics as a brand if you want to do good business right sure it's more like those are the those are like kind of the rules of playing the game and i would say it's yeah. quite similar in japan it's quite similar in korea taiwan would maybe be an exception here because it's a very like in intellectually political like openly engaged society but in the other countries yeah you can't be going around thailand is another where people are being silenced I don't know. It's just a lot more authoritarian regimes and 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 don't be bringing your politics into your business dealings especially since a lot of business dealings are predicated on a lot of political favors and the government giving you access to land to build malls and then the developers don't want brands that are going to cause, you know, trouble. Nobody wants controversy here. So yeah,
9: yeah.
6: if you're courting controversy, if you can stay on the edges and kind of keep doing your thing with your American population and customers getting their, you know, political requirements met while you just kind of sit on the sidelines in Asia, then, yeah, I think that's what the brand wants to do. But how long can they keep that up? I mean, but, it is, yeah. uh, other than China, it is one global internet. And yeah. people are angry to different extreme. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, I think there's a lot of backfiring going on.
9: Yeah, no, that's a really good point.
0: Go ahead, Louisa. No, I was just going to see if anyone else had... Follow-ups or comments on this? Errol, nothing around politicization of brands when you were at Whole Foods? Yeah,
2: I mean it's a lot of what happened during Black Lives Matter was virtue signaling. Nothing's mm-hmm. really changed. So I worked really closely with Starbucks for years. It's a very middle-of-the-road company. They don't want to alienate their urban, cosmopolitan, you know, diverse customers. But who owns Starbucks? Who's making decisions? How are the restaurants, you know, how are the, the locations run? They're very anti-union. You know, they've they've pushed back. They were one of the companies that killed the uh, Employee Free Choice Act uh, back during the Obama administration. So for me, I, I think it's there's a shallowness to culture war theory. And you know, if a bunch of uh, Trumpies want to open up their own coffee shop, you know, great, you know, because they're alienated by some of Starbucks virtue signaling. But for me, it doesn't really hit to the heart of the matter, which is that the food industry, the food, you know, you know food service and retail is still primarily. Highly concentrated in terms of wealth and ownership and governance and who's making the decisions. And it's real this isn't really getting to the heart of anything. I, I think it's a distraction. I did love your your article though. I thought it was awesome just that you're documenting it and that we're actually having these conversations. But I don't think anything will fundamentally change from these types of conflicts.
9: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, to me, it was just more interesting watching these companies that have been pretty inert, just like barely kind of creak into action to and go into crisis mode, and, and feel like they need to cover these bases in the most kind of lowest common denominator, mealy-mouth kind of way. It was still, like, interesting to watch, though. I don't know.
2: And to see that it's engendered such a reaction, and that's, that's what's so right, compelling yeah. about your piece. It's like, they barely did anything. <laughs> Look how it pissed all <laughs> sure. these folks off, and they don't want to deal with yeah. it anymore. You know, what if I mean, it goes back. changes? You know?
9: Yeah, so, I mean, that goes back to I mean, like, you, you see that, you know, like, it doesn't matter what Joe Biden does. The people on the right are still going to call him, you know, the, the furthest left president ever, like a socialist or a communist. That's just kind of how it works, I think, that uh, no matter uh, any even like mild lurch towards social justice or progressivism in any way, that's just how it's going to be. That that is enough to open a coffee shop with a fake Trump in the back, you know, like that It doesn't really matter what the how, how mild the uh, the inflection point is that sort of contingency is always going to react in the most extreme way.
0: Thank you so much. What an interesting conversation. I mean, we could just keep going for hours. We're definitely running out of time. Um, hope, I saw you made a comment on the chat board that you wanted to get to the conversation around SPACs and exits. You know, definitely a massive departure from the topics we've just been discussing now. But its I'll just quickly make a comment around it. It's been a really massive week for AgTech. tech In particular, around exits, we have had two massive SPACs were announced this week. And for those of you that don't know, SPACs are special purpose acquisition companies that are essentially listed on a stock exchange with the sole purpose of finding a company out there to merge with. So it means that um, startup companies do not have to go through the typical IPO process. Where they market their company, speak with investors. It's a much shorter sort of roadshow situation. And so there were two companies that did um, announce large SPACs this week. There was Ginkgo Bioworks, who are creating engineering microbes to create a whole raft of different products, from flavors and fragrances to soil inputs, to, uh, there's a, they've got a spin off called Motive Food Works, which is doing stuff in the alternative protein space. And there was also a company on the gene editing side called Benson Hill that announced uh, a company that's going to value them after the deal at about $2 billion. And what's really interesting is at the beginning of this year, I spoke to a bunch of venture capital investors in ag tech and I said, you know, what are you guys thinking about for this year? And a lot of them said, you know, we're concerned about where our exits are going to come from. You know, ag tech's been around now. There are a lot of companies that are reaching a certain maturity. And when you think about a venture capital fund is about 10 years in length. You know, they need to get an exit at some point. And, you know, they're concerned about that. You know, none of us have known where exits were going to come from. The large food and agriculture companies don't seem to be particularly acquisitive. So then this SPAC uh, trend, this frenzy that's going on at the moment, has come at quite a good time for a lot of these companies. And I spoke to Ginkgo Bioworks earlier today, and they said that, you know, what was great about the SPAC process was that because it's a very complicated business, and I think this will be the same probably for Benson Hill as well and for AgTech overall, the, the conversations they can have with investors are, are much more flexible. When you do an IPO process, you're much more how to be much more guarded in what you say, and so they could really spend time speaking with investors and explaining the business models, which you know there aren't going to be many comparables on stock markets. So they could do a lot more of that, like deeper due diligence, which I think they're more limited to doing in IPOs. So that was really interesting and is hopefully creating a new exit. Uh, route for companies. And I, I will close off here because we're running out of time. But I'll just say there's now I think there's gonna be a little bit of a reckoning in SPACs. The regulators are, are coming in and actually want to um, add more regulation and it might get a little bit more closer to an IPO process and not be quite as easy as it has been up until now. But anyway, it was big, big news Louisa, for, for AgTech.
6: Louisa, would you choose SPAC over IPO? I'm just, I'm just really curious for people who, who are writing about this.
0: Would I choose it? I mean, as I was saying, I mean, it sounds like for for ag tech where, you know, there there aren't many like sort of newer ag tech companies, you know, listed. Obviously, you've got large agriculture companies listed, you know, tractor companies and so on. But I think it was a really interesting point that Ginkgo made that you could spend a lot more time uh, talking about how, you know, talking about the business and and explaining it to investors. And I think that's been really important. And when there's been this lack of acquirers out there, for some of these companies, I think it's, you know, we needed this as a push. And, you know, I think even if the regulations do tighten, I think it'll still be a great route for um, startups to take. Having said that, I will say there was, you know, a decent exit that was done with an M&A. There was a farm software company called Prospera that was acquired by Valmont for $300 million. So, you know, perhaps we're just at a good point now for companies are at a certain amount of maturity and and companies will be more acquisitive. But, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens like with SPACs in the next few weeks and months with the regulators and and how it will change. I know that there's apparently there's like 40, 50 SPACs out there looking for companies to merge with and things are getting um, a bit tricky there. So, you know, I th- yeah, I mean, I think it seems like a great route for these companies. I'm, I'm super glad it's, you know, really great for our industry to have had these, you know, multi-billion dollar exits. All right. Well, thank you all so much. I'm sorry we ran, lo- we ran long.
1: Yeah, but it was such a great conversation. We thank you to all of the journalists for joining us. Thank you to all of you for joining us as well. As Louisa said, over the summer, we're moving to doing this. Um, monthly instead of weekly and this will be available in podcast format as well so be sure to either follow Food tech connect club or follow louisa and i Um, our newsletters are in our bio so you can get notified as soon as the podcast is up hope that you all have a great weekend and hopefully people are vaccinated and able to get out and see their loved ones and friends so thank you all so much
0: thank you thanks everyone thank you Bye. bye You've been Literature Food with me, Louisa Burwood-Taylor. For news and insights on the food and ag tech industries, go to agfundernews.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review.